0: Um, would you turn to Philemon with me? I mentioned this morning that over the next uh, couple of Sunday evenings we're going to do a Bible study really on the book of Philemon. Um, you'll find it on page 11, one, one, oh no you won't, you'll find it on page 1200, which doesn't actually have a number, you'll have to work that out. 1200, zero, zero. straight after the book of Titus, before the book of Hebrews, it's a one page letter. And um, I'd like us to take some time over the, the couple of the Sunday evenings in July just to reflect on this letter and see what we can learn from it. And this evening, I want to do so by way of introduction to Philemon. So I'm going to read the whole of the letter, um, beginning at verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith, so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement, because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me, so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent So that any favour you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner... Welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience and... I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So reads God's word. A fascinating little letter. Lots of themes and uh, ideas within it which we'll be able to develop in the weeks ahead. But as I say this evening, I want to begin more by way of introduction. I don't know whether you recognize this woman. Ong San Suu Kyi. She lives in Burma, as it was previously called, uh, is the opposition leader and Nobel Peace Prize laureate, known to many of her followers simply as the Lady. She has spent more than 10 of the past 17 years under house arrest at her lakeside residence in central Rangoon. Her only contact with the outside world in recent years has been a shortwave radio and a monthly visit from her doctor. She lives with two maids, but is not allowed to receive guests, including her two adult sons. Hopes for her release ran high after the military regime allowed a top United Nations envoy to visit her on May 20th, the first meetings between a foreigner and the pro-democracy leader in two years. Instead, the regime extended her house arrest by another year on May 27th and rebuffed an ensuing international uproar, calling her detention an internal matter. Despite rising international pressure on the country, isolated for its abuses against dissidents and ethnic minorities, many of whom live in the border area of Chiang Mai in Thailand and uh, many of whom are Christians. Um, The regime is unlikely to set her free any time soon. The government is afraid of Aung San Suu Kyi because she is still very popular among the people, a Rangoon-based diplomat told the news agency, asking not to be named. If she goes free, she can quickly draw people and call for democracy. She is the daughter of the country's independence leader, General Aung San. She studied and worked abroad, including for the United Nations, but returned to Burma in 1988 to care for her ailing mother. That same year mass pro-democracy rallies broke out but were quashed by the military. She co-founded the National League for Democracy but was put under house arrest in 1989. She refused an offer of freedom if she left the country for good. The National Uh, League for Democracy won the 1990 elections by a landslide, but the regime ignored the result and clung to power. A devout Buddhist, she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize the following year for her non-violent struggle. Her most recent house arrest period began after a convoy was attacked by a junta backed mob during a political tour of northern Burma on May 30, 2003. You may remember that from the news. The attack left four people dead, and she was briefly jailed. Her husband, British academic Michael Arras, died in 1999 of cancer. In his final months, the junta denied him a visa, while Aung Sang Suu Kyi refused to travel to see him, certain she would never be allowed to return. The junta, which frequently vilifies the democracy leader in the state-run press, has revoked the passports of her two sons, Alexander and Kim, and repeatedly denied them visas on their British passports. I don't know whether you're familiar with this woman. She's a remarkable woman. Her story is a remarkable one, and her stand is quite remarkable. I use her as an illustration. An illustration of what can often be the counterproductive nature of putting people under house arrest. She is probably far better known now after 17 years of house arrest, probably far more influential on the world political stage than she ever was before the junta put her under arrest. Although, mind you, they were very afraid of her. But she's a classic illustration of how counterproductive house arrest or arresting people that the state is concerned about uh, can actually prove to be. And I use her as an illustration because that's part of the background and the context of the book of Philemon. Because the context is that Paul is under house arrest when he writes this letter. If you turn to Acts chapter 28, you'll get a little bit of the flavor of Paul's situation when this letter to Philemon is written. It's written sometime around AD 58-60 to 60, and Acts chapter 28 on page 1126 of the copies of the Bible in the pews gives you some of the background to Paul's circumstances and context at this particular time. Uh, Paul has been travelling to Rome. He made his appeal to Caesar, having been uh, before local governors in the region of Jerusalem and Caesarea Philippi. Uh, and when he arrives in Rome, it says in verse 16, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. A very similar kind of arrangement to the arrangement that Ang Sang Su Kyi lives under at present. And three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews, and when they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain." So he refers to this house arrest as a chain or as being chained. And they replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But We want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. That's the Christians. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will ever be hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused, they hardly hear with their ears and have closed their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's the context in which this letter to Philemon is written. That's the context in which we find the Apostle Paul. The context of the letter itself to Philemon is clear from verses 9 and 10 of the letter. If you want to go back to that, that's on page 1,200. Because in that passage that we read earlier, Paul is appealing as an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, which is the Acts 28 context. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. And the context seems to be that uh, Onesimus has come across or found Paul while under house arrest in Rome. And as a consequence of finding Paul, seems to have become a Christian. And Paul is now sending him back to his master, to Philemon. So this is the basic context of the message. The first thing I want to just say about this is that it's a very important principle to remember that circumstances do not necessarily define what is achievable. That's true in life generally, but it's particularly true in the Christian life. Circumstances do not necessarily define what is achievable. When Paul is under house arrest, as you read here in the book of Acts, um, he has many opportunities to witness to Jewish people and to Gentile people quite freely. And he takes that. A number of important letters, and probably more than we actually have preserved for us, are written while he's in Rome. Colossians and Philemon are two of them. Ephesians and Philippians would appear to be another two. Hugely influential letters which are addressing the spiritual life and the moral life of the church are written during this particular period in time. So being under house arrest in Rome, very far removed from Jerusalem, very far removed from South Asia, uh, the southern Asian region uh, of what we would today refer as Turkey, has not in any way proved a problem in regard to Paul's ministry. Circumstances do not necessarily define what is achievable in life generally and certainly in the context of the gospel. As I say, it's, it's, it's a principle of life. It's true not just of Christians. I think of Martin Luther King, I think of Gandhi, we think of Suu Kyi, and other people whose circumstances may not have been great but whose influence has been huge. But it's particularly true in the context of the gospel Many Christians who have found themselves in difficult circumstances have been hugely effective. I think of the list of people that are named in Hebrews chapter 11. Many of whose names we don't actually know, particularly when you get to the end of the chapter, but whose circumstances were clearly very difficult. And there they are as witnesses, not only in their own day, but 2,000 years later in our day, to faith in Jesus Christ and how it can transform the lives of people. The story of Philemon is a story of conversion and challenge, the conversion of of Onesimus and the challenge that it presents to him, that it presents to Paul, that it presents to Philemon and that it presents to a particular church that was meeting of which Philemon was part. All of that comes out of circumstances that would seem to be less than desirable. I know that some people who are listening to this will be listening to it um, during the week ahead or in later days. And they are you are unable to leave your homes. But you must never underestimate the influence of your prayers, your letters, your telephone conversations. The circumstances in which you find yourself do not necessarily define the degree to which God is going to use you or can use you. And that's true for all of us sitting here. I don't know what your personal circumstances are, and they will vary across this room. And some may not be as you would wish them to be at this particular time. But that does not limit how God can use you and will use you in the days that lie ahead. Do not measure your usefulness to God or your effectiveness in his kingdom by your circumstances. God is not bound by them as he wasn't in Paul's circumstances. The second thing in regard to context that I want to speak about for a minute is to do with canon. We refer to the canon of scripture. We refer to the collection of books which make up the Bible, which make up scripture, and and the, the term that's used is canon. And you'll notice that Philemon is placed after Titus, which is after the letters to Timothy, after the letters to the Thessalonians. And one of the things I want you to do as we think about the letter to Philemon is to think of it slightly differently and to put it in a different place in your minds. Um, Traditionally, as they say, it belongs behind the book of Titus. But I'd rather you thought about it tucked in behind the, the letter to the Colossians. So you would have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then put Philemon in there in your minds. I think that's more useful and more helpful. Because the letter to Philemon seems to be a rare insight into the outworking of the theology and practical Christian teaching which is given in the letter to the Colossians. I read from Colossians earlier on in the opening part of our service. That's that passage which spoke about the Lord Jesus Christ and how everything was created through him. And how all God's fullness was seen to dwell in him. It's rich in its theology and its teaching. But it's also amazingly practical, and we'll look at some aspects of it in the weeks to come, particularly passages like Colossians 3, which the NIV very helpfully has a little heading, which they've put in, which says, rules for holy living. It's very practical about how we should live and how we should think as Christians. And the letter to Philemon is really a radical application of the theology that is taught in the book of Colossians. Something else that you need to notice. The authorship at the beginning of this is clearly a joint authorship by Paul and Timothy. Some people often talk about how when you see the two names together, or Paul, Timothy, and Silas, it means that Timothy was the scribe. That doesn't seem to be the case here. Because in verse 19, Paul says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hands. I will pay it back. And it's quite likely that he wrote the entire letter by himself. But there seems to be a joint authorship here, which is something just to bear in mind. Because very often we talk about the letters of Paul and don't recognize that the scripture makes reference to the fact that they come from Paul and Timothy or Paul and Timothy and Silas. The same is true with the letter to the Colossians. If you look at the beginning of that letter, you'll see that it too comes from Paul and Timothy. And I'm not sure that it's appropriate to think of Timothy simply as a scribe. And our series recently on Sunday nights in 2 Timothy should have given you enough background on Timothy's role in understanding as a key player in the life of the early church to appreciate that this is something that almost certainly he and Paul discussed, these issues and how they should be addressed. And what we have here is a letter that comes from them. Which raises lots of interesting questions which we won't go into this evening. But interesting questions about what gives the letter authority. What gives the letter authority is not simply being absolutely certain that it was written by the Apostle Paul. But that it appears here in the canon of scripture attested by the early church to the the Apostle Paul and to Timothy. And because of the nature of what it teaches. But those are interesting issues that maybe we can come back to some other occasion. So, an introduction by way of context, by way of canon. Something I want to say briefly about content by way of introduction. On the face of it, the content of this letter is very straightforward. Look at verses 10 and 12 and verses 17 to 18. Paul says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and me. I'm sending him back. It's pretty explanatory. Onesimus has come across Paul or found Paul while he's been under house arrest. There's become a a transformation in Onesimus' life, the kind of language that Paul uses about him. And now he's been sent back uh, to his master. And verses 17 and 18, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. So this is about reconciliation. This is about making good a relationship which has been stressed in some kind of way. Now, slavery in Paul's Paul's world was very interesting. Power was in the hands of a few, within the hands of an elite within Roman society. Uh, Most people were what we would refer to these days as working class. And upward mobility wasn't easy. There wasn't a school you could go to with GCSEs and A-levels and do a degree and then take up a profession. There wasn't that kind of structure at all. And slaves were very often key workers In Roman society, particularly in the cities, it's said that in many of the major cities of Paul's day, one third of the population were slaves and another third of the population were people who had formerly been slaves, the rest being citizens of various degrees of social status. And slaves came in two kinds, essentially, or two categories. There were those who were bond slaves, those who had no freedoms whatsoever, or uh, were were literally, well, all slaves were owned by their masters, but were maybe bought on the slave market as a consequence of being captured in war and battle or whatever. And there were others who were quite skilled. They may have been the teachers employed to teach the children in a rich family. They may have been the doctors To think of doctors as slaves, I know it's a very radical thing, but that's the way it would have been in that particular situation. And many people who were free people in Roman society decided to become slaves and uh, became slaves to a household, maybe a very rich household, and gave up some of their rights to have the tenure that was there. So when you read the word slave, don't think simply of somebody who was completely destitute and uh, dressed in rags and all the rest of it. You could be talking here about our contemporary professionals, as well as people who did very menial chores and had very, very hard lives. We don't know exactly into what category Onesimus falls. Traditionally, Onesimus has been thought of someone who was a slave, who had stolen from his master, had run away, had bumped into the Apostle Paul in Rome, and had been converted and now was being sent back. And that may well be the case. Hence Paul's thing about, you know, if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. On the other hand, Onesimus may have been in Rome on business on behalf of the household and his master. The business may have gone very badly. He may have sought Paul out because he knew Paul and he knew that Paul knew his master because Paul would have been in his home on many occasions, as seems to be clear from the end of this, about prepare a room for me. It seems to be the kind of thing that has happened. And it may be that Onesimus needs Paul to represent him because he's very worried about going back. Who knows we don't know the details and we can't be absolutely specific but the story basically is about someone who has been estranged from his household and his master has encountered the Apostle Paul either by seeking him out or by bumping into him has had a change in his own life and is now going back to a situation where under normal Roman society and rules he not only has no rights but he might have been very severely punished. And Paul wants him to go back as a brother, and he wants Philemon to accept him as a brother. And that, essentially, is the story. But the story, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, presents a really important principle to us. The challenge of grace. The challenge that God's grace brings to our lives, our circumstances, and our relationships. And this would have been a big challenge for Philemon. This was a big moment in the life of the church of which he was a part. When someone who had run away comes back, comes back as a brother, what do you do when you own them? And if you've been brought up to think that way, and if that's the way your society thinks, and if that's the normal way of doing things, just imagine the challenge that this presents to a group of Christians. That this runaway slave who they used to see at work within the household, is coming back and coming back as a brother in Christ, as a member of the church, as an equal in his standing before God. The principle here is the challenge of grace. That's what lies behind this story. And it's going to be a very interesting theme to develop. And finally, by way of introduction this evening, I want to just make a reference to the characters who are involved in this story and to Paul as a team player. Now here's the list of characters who are involved in this story. It's a very short letter but there's a lot of people mentioned here. There's Philemon whom traditionally we assume to be the recipient although some people have disputed that. There's Iphia, who would appear to be his wife. We have no way of knowing for sure. She's just mentioned there uh, in verse 2, our sister. And there's Archippus a fellow soldier and someone who is the leader in the church, wherever this church happens to be, because the church meets in his home. Some people argue that Archippus is actually the person who owns Onesimus, the slave, and that Philemon is a dear friend of Paul's and fellow worker who is going to be involved in this reconciliation. You can make up your own mind. We'll stick with it as being Philemon. Here are three people who are all intimately involved They have relationships that matter, and Onesimus is going to go back into this situation. They are related to Paul through the work of the gospel. More than that, we don't necessarily know a great deal. Well, except for Archippus. If you go back to Colossians, and Colossians chapter 4, which is on page 1185, you'll see that Paul makes reference to him there as well. Verses 16 and 17, the very end of the letter to the Colossians, the church there. Paul says, after this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, here's the quote, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. So what little we know about Archippus is that he was a leader in these churches in Colossae and Laodicea. And that he had a particular task to do, which gives us a clue as to where Philemon lives, either in Laodicea or Colossae, and where Onesimus is being sent back. Then there's Onesimus himself. The name means useful. Paul talks about how he has become useful to me in the letter, whether that's his real name, whether that's a name that's been given to him in the context uh, of his relationship with Paul, we can't be sure, but it's the name we're going to go with. And then there's Epaphras, that passage in Colossians chapter 4. A little earlier in verse 12, we find mention of Epaphras, where Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of you, in other words, he's from Colossae, and a servant of Christ Jesus sends his greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in the, all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him. That he is working hard for you and those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. So here's Epaphras. And Epaphras also comes from Colossae or Laodicea. Which again reinforces this idea that that's where Philemon is from. And that's where Onesimus has travelled from and is going back to. He's obviously someone who is very involved in Paul's ministry and work. And is with Paul in Rome at this particular time so you see a network of relationships that are being established here and the reason why I say that Philemon really belongs in after Colossians the letters were written around the same time and Philemon seems to be a letter of practical application to particular difficulty to the very same people that Paul is writing to when he writes the letter to Colossians uh, as well and then there's Aristarchus he's another fellow prisoner And no stranger to controversy. If you want to read about Aristarchus, you've got to go to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 19, when Paul is in Ephesus, there's an uproar. And there's a riot starts. And two people, Gaius and Aristarchus, are arrested by the mob. And are going to be tried because of their association with the apostle Paul. So this is a man who's familiar with controversy. And he's used to danger and difficulty and he's with the Apostle Paul at the minute. He also makes the journey with Paul. Uh, in Acts 27 it tells us how he travels with Paul on this journey to Rome. So he's a, he's a close ally of the Apostle Paul and he's clearly important in this because verse 24 of Philemon, uh, Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke all send their greetings. And then there are Demas and Luke. Demas, who is currently working with Paul, though, if you remember from the series in Second Timothy, eventually deserts him at a later time, and Luke to whom we are indebted for the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Here's the team of people, a lot of people, all mentioned in one very short letter. Their relationships from what we can gather gives us a clue to the context of where Philemon lives and where he works. A clue to the context in which Onesimus is going back. And because we know so much about Colossians and the nature of Paul's relationship there, it strengthens the idea that when Onesimus was in difficulty, whatever that difficulty was, he knew he could go to the Apostle Paul. He knew to find him out in prison or under house arrest in Rome, and he found more than he bargained for. He found help, but he also seems to have found faith in Jesus Christ. The other thing about this list of people is it tells us something about the nature of the way the Apostle Paul works. There's a great temptation to think of the Apostle Paul as a loner as just this great personality, this hugely strong personality who writes all these things and does all this missionary stuff and gets into all kinds of trouble and scrapes and gets out of it again. But it's quite clear, even from this letter and the corresponding relationships in Acts and Colossians, that Paul was a team player. He built a team. He worked with a group of people. He devolved responsibility. He encouraged other people in their gifts and in their work. He was a team builder as well as a team leader, and he felt it deeply when people deserted him, like Demas in Second Timothy. It would be very wrong, in the light of that, to say that Paul is overrated. I don't think you could overrate the Apostle Paul, a remarkable personality. But it's right to say that he's underrated as a team player. We don't think of him enough in those terms. And we should. Because the Apostle Paul believed and practiced what he taught about the life of the church. Remember, he taught about the church being like a body, where every part needs the other. He believed that. He practiced that in the way in which he conducted his apostolic ministry, working across continents and working across many different churches in many different situations. All of which tells us something very important about our role in the work of the gospel. Because the possibility is that you come to church this evening and you sit there and you think that you are nothing other than pew fodder. And that the work gets done up here. That's not true. That's just the way we choose to do church. Where I stand here and speak or somebody else stands here and speak. But that's not what being church is about. The church is about you. You. It's about your role in the purposes of God and how God uses you and how you make yourself available to be used by him. Because it's in your life that the work of the kingdom is built and established. It's through your witness that the kingdom is extended. Not through what happens by one or two isolated people standing here at the front. And it's important to think about that because that's clearly what the Apostle Paul believed and it's clearly what he practiced and it's clearly the way in which he saw things develop. He wasn't this loner, this great leader who built the churches all by himself. He was one of a team, one of a number. I'm one of a number, a team, and we're all part of it together. And that's how you ought to think about yourself and your role. You could be an Archippus, an Epaphras, a Mark, a Luke. You could be any one of these people. You are one of these people if you belong to Jesus Christ. And your role in the sharing of the gospel and in the making of the gospel known is every bit as important as anybody else's. So out of this context of simply looking at the background to the letter of Philemon, there are quite a number of things. You can't allow circumstances to dictate what God can do and will do through your life. The Apostle Paul is under house arrest. And more has been achieved possibly during those two years under house arrest in his writing and the influence in the churches and people being converted like Onesimus than at any other time in his life and ministry. At least as much. Don't let your circumstances or how you perceive them determine in your mind what God can do or will do through you. That would be wrong. We think about. Philemon as a letter, where it belongs in the canon of scripture and how it is put together. Think of it as belonging to Colossians. Think of it as being a practical illustration of the outworking of the teaching that is in the letter to the Colossians. So go and read the letter to the Colossians and then read the letter to Philemon. It'll make a great deal more sense and will appear all the more dramatic. And think about the content. The content is not just the story of a runaway slave being sent back to his master. The content is essentially about the principle of grace and the challenge that grace brings to our lives. And that's what we need to think about and that's what we need to explore. And think about that list of names of people. A fascinating list of people who have been through all kinds of experiences with the Apostle Paul. All necessary to the cause of the Gospel. All in there playing a much bigger part than you would perceive simply from the letters themselves. Because by their very nature, the letters are dealing with very particular themes and not detailing the work that all these people did. Your role is as important as anybody else's in the kingdom of God and in the church. So do read Colossians, do read Philemon, and think about these issues and ask questions of the text and see what God would say to you through it.